Doing okay? I'm Althea Brooks, and I'm Senior Director in Lifetime Learning in the Office of Engagement. It is indeed my pleasure to welcome you here to More Than the Score this Saturday morning. It is our final More Than the Score for the season. Final. I know, that's kind of sad, huh? But we had six today, counting today, six fabulous talks. Um, and believe it or not, you can listen to almost all of them with the exception of Larry Sabato's talk on our podcast site. So remember to download and share with friends. really has been a great season. Um, and great turnout for these. We've averaged about 300 or more each Saturday morning, which is pretty darn impressive. Very impressive. So thank you for showing up uh, on each Saturday morning. So it, along with the Alumni Association, um, we, we want to welcome you. There are partners for More Than Score, and we've been providing this program for the last 12 years. So thank you for being here. So how many of you have attended all six? Just show hands. All six this season. Fabulous. Five or four? Yeah, yeah. Um, three, yeah. <laughs> Anyone first time? Anyone first time? Well, welcome. I, I hope it's not your last time uh, showing up for more than a score. We'll be back next year. As I told someone earlier this morning, we now have faculty calling us to say, can I participate in more than a score? <laughs> so this morning we have an esteemed panel, and I'll introduce them in just a few minutes. But go ahead and make them feel really welcome. They'll provide us some really useful, helpful tips on keeping our um, privacy, our cybersecurity um, privacy online safe. And they gave this talk uh, during the summer for reunions, and we had such a great turnout for that and fabulous questions that, uh, for, the, uh, for the panelists, and we thought we've got to bring them back to more in score. So that's why they're here today. So again, thank them for, uh, for being here this morning. Um, just a couple of things. Uh, if you'll go ahead and silence the ringer on your phone, just turn it down. Feedback cards, if you'll, uh, if you'll um, fill out those w wonderful orange feedback cards and give those to us at the end of the today, we'll, we'll, we'll keep those. And that's what really helps us to uh, select faculty and to plan for, uh, for next year. At the end of the program today, we'll be giving away the um, Mr. Jefferson's Telescope book. It's uh, 100 Objects That Tell the History of the University. If you haven't had an opportunity to go over to Albert and Shirley Small Collections Library, it's a fantastic exhibit uh, showing 100 objects, um, historical objects that will tell the story of UVA. Um, take a moment to do that. And that exhibit will be up through, I think, the end of June. <clears throat> Silence the ringer on that phone. All righty. Now to introduce our panelists for today. Our panel will be moderated by Angela Orba. She's the Assistant Professor and Director of Cybersecurity and IT Programs at the University of Virginia School of Continuing and Professional Studies. Angela brings a broad spectrum of expertise in cybersecurity as a technologist, researcher, educator, and author. She has a master's degree in computer science from James Madison University and a PhD in information technology from George Mason University. Then we have Jason Belfort. Uh, Jason is uh, Chief Information Security Officer at UVA. In this role, Jason leads the team's uh, tasks with protecting UVA's data, systems, and networks. Jason holds a Master's of Information, Information Security from Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech? Georgia Tech? Are we playing Georgia Tech today? Jason. By the way, I do have two free tickets for uh, the game. If anyone wants to go, hand in the air. You can have it. All right, I'll see you right after this. All right, and then we have, last but certainly not least, Ryan Wright. Ryan is the Associate Professor in the McIntyre School of Commerce at the University of Virginia. Ryan's research interests include cybersecurity and privacy. He currently serves as Vice President for the Association of Information Systems and is the Associate Editor of the European Journal of Information Systems. 
Ryan holds a PhD in Business Administration from Washington State University. Please help me welcome this esteemed panel this morning to More Than a Score. So welcome everyone and thank you for joining us on this beautiful fall day here in Charlottesville. Um, we're happy to talk to you today about the good, the bad, and the ugly of cybersecurity in our connected cyber world these days um, and to give you some tips and tricks on protecting your security and privacy so that you walk away from here with something in your pocket and maybe a little homework too. Uh, the map that we have up here right now is the Norse map that's just showing actively what's happening in the world right now in terms of cybersecurity attacks. So you can just visually see this map never sleeps. There's always something going on. There's always bad guys out there scanning the internet. There's always bad guys out there trying to hack into your email, trying to get your credit cards. Um, in fact, the latest statistic that I've seen is 64% of Americans have had some sort of compromise. So consider this half of the room to about right here. All of you guys on this half of the room, you know, could have had a compromise. This could be credit card compromise, some sort of identity compromise. It could be your social media account, your email account. Two out of three Americans have had some sort of compromise. And that's, we can go to the next slide, that's trending upwards. You know, that's, that's headed up. It's not headed down from 64%, it's headed up. So cybersecurity matters in a big way because this number is headed up. And one of the reasons is, next slide please, um, things like Equifax, for example. So most of you have probably heard about Equifax. Um, and cybersecurity matters because a breach like Equifax that got 140 million uh, people's information could have been prevented. The patch was out for the web application. The web server should have been patched. So cybersecurity matters by doing simple little things like patching a server to protect information. And we're not talking about you know, random information. We're talking about the keys to the kingdom type of information for 140 million people. So that's one of the reasons that cybersecurity matters. Now, once the attackers get this information, then they're gonna start using it on the, um, the dark web, on the underground. Then they're gonna start selling the information. So we can move on to the next slide. And Ryan will tell us about yeah. that. So a lot of people ask me, it's like, what do they do with this information that they steal from these particular businesses and individuals? And it really starts with this whole concept that you may have heard of called the deep web. Now, it's a simple definition of what the deep web is. is anything that cannot be found by an internet search engine such as Google. So only 4% of websites can be found by Google. The rest of it is what they call unindexed, meaning you cannot find these websites unless you know what the addresses are. Some of them are for legitimate purposes and some of them are not. The ones that are not uh, is called the dark web. And the dark web is where they sell your information, they sell nefarious services, they do all sorts of things that we've probably heard of in that, deep, uh, in that dark web. You need a special browser, what they call a Tor browser, which anonymizes you to kind of um, navigate your, your way around th this dark web. But if you look at it as an iceberg, and you think at the top of the iceberg as websites that we can see with Google, Everything else you cannot see with Google is out there. It's called the deep web. And so this is where they communicate, they sell information, et cetera. So what exactly are they selling? Let me give you an example. So one of the things I like to do is I like to navigate the dark web. But I really like to do this with my wife's laptop and not my own laptop. <laughs> so this is a thing that uh, I recently found on my wife's laptop where you can buy here a full profile, what they call foals, with a credit score of 816 from a male age 59, and it tells you other pieces of information you can buy, date of birth, social security number, et cetera. This is a full profile that you can buy. So this is what they're doing. Much like Equifax is doing, where they're assembling information and turning around and selling it to marketers, the same principle holds for the bad guys. And in fact, I've said many, many times that these folks are really entrepreneurs and they're using their powers for bad rather than good, but they have some really innovative ideas. And one of the things, they package their services just like Equifax does 
and turns around and sells them. Now look at the purchase price on there, and if you can't see it in the back, you can buy a full profile for around $50. This is a relatively old profile, so if you had a newer profile, it would be worth more money. Another thing I like to do on my wife's laptop is go around and see what the market is willing to bear for certain things. So what do you think a, a credit card would go for? A simple credit card with the uh, CVV number, that, that security code. You're, you're not bad. Five to eight dollars uh, for a particular credit card. That's what they're selling for. So when they steal 30 million of them, you could start doing the math. This is a very, very lucrative uh, business. Um, and in fact, one of my favorite stories is about eight years ago, they caught one of these individuals in San Diego who was stealing credit card information through phishing email attacks. And the FBI caught him. And how they caught him wasn't through technology, some fancy, some fancy means. is he went to the Porsche dealership and tried to buy a Porsche with cash. So that's a good way for the FBI to become very interested in what you're trying to do. Um, a lot of what they're doing, too, is you can buy services that will help you steal information. So you can go to the deep web and say, I need 10,000 credit cards. For, can, can one of you hackers help me steal that? And somebody could help you do that. So it's a whole marketplace. Credit card with all the details about the owner is about 30. So you... Where, the, where you reside, your address, your date of birth, those types of things, for a new credit card less than 24 hours old of being stolen. Now, a question I always get um, from folks is, what's, what is my social security number worth? What do you think your social security number is worth? This is uh, my latest market research is I went around and I tried to buy social security numbers. One dollar. And the reason is $1, simple economics, they already have your social security number. <laughs> it tells you the value. And in fact, um, one of the things up here when I went to look around, your Netflix account is worth about 6 to $7. So it's worth 6 to 7 times more than your social security number is right now on the dark web. So it tells you a little bit about, you know, what these marketplaces and what they look like and why they're trying to sell these packages, et cetera. One thing that everybody goes, is this state actors or, or is these criminals? And how you can tell if it's a state actor or if it's a criminal and how they use the information. So if they turn around and sell it, it's typically criminals stealing your information. If they don't see it on the dark web, it's typically state actors that have stolen that information for another purpose that comes along. So when you see these things like uh, the recent marketing that um, Discover has done, a brilliant marketing saying, we can tell you when your social security number shows up online if you sign up for our particular services. Um, that'll tell you if criminals are using your social security number. But again, that's really not what they're after anymore because that's been released 10 times over sometimes for particular people's social security number. So we're going to transition... And the first part of this is let's, let's scare them a little and have some fun. And then the second part of this is, you know, what should we be concerned about and how do we inoculate ourselves? So I want to progress the conversation onto that. All right. So as we've already talked about, the bad guys are getting our information and they're selling it or they're doing other things. But how is this happening? You know, besides the Equifax attack, which I already explained how that happened, the web server wasn't patched, they were able to get in and grab all the keys to the kingdom from the database, you know, what other types of attacks should we be concerned about? So just show of hands, who knows what phishing is? Is that a term? All right. This is great. So I will tell you, I, I, I do a lot of presentations around UVA, and I go and ask that of our faculty and staff, and I don't get that show of hands. So that is fantastic. So for those of you who didn't raise your hand, let me tell you, it's a scam. It's a scam that's usually perpetrated by email. Uh, sometimes there, you look at them and say, does anybody expect anybody to believe this? And there is somebody that will. But the other ones are, they're really good. And I will say, everybody in this room, even including this panel, if the right message was sent, you can fall for it. Um, there was once a, of, a, of a, a large company, there was a CEO who, they, the, fishers, the bad guys were after him. They kept sending him phishing messages, phishing messages, and he wasn't falling for it. Then they figured out one thing. They needed to get the right strings. They figured out he was out of town. He had a son playing soccer, and the, he was going to miss his son's soccer game. They sent him an email that said a couple days after the soccer game, Hi, this is Bob. I'm Johnny's dad. Saw you weren't at the game. I videotaped it. Here's the link to it. It wasn't a video. It was malware. He got infected. 
These scams can come in forms of verify your account. It could be things like, hey, this is the IRS. You're going to be arrested. You have to do this. First of all, the IRS is not going to email you. They're going to send you those official letters in the mail. Um, it could be things like PayPal, go verify your account. Want any of those? Go to the source. Don't click the links. Go to PayPal. If, if, if your account's really in trouble at PayPal and you log in, they're going to have a nice big red banner there saying your account's in trouble. So that's, that's, that's the easiest way these bad guys can get your information. If they are able to fool you enough to click the link and put your credentials in or download something, the rest is history. They own all of that now. One of the things that uh, comes out of phishing and clicking on links is ransomware. Show of hands of how many people are familiar with ransomware. You've heard of it? Okay. A good number of you. Um, so ransomware, I just, I think I, I dislike this one more than anything else <laughs> that's out there because it's just so darn mean. You click on one of these links that you think is legitimate and the next thing you know, Something like this pops up. This is called TeslaCrypt. It's just one of the many ransomwares out there that says, hey, I've just encrypted everything on your computer, and you can have it back, but you have to pay me. So, you know, the attackers out there, if they're not getting to your money by stealing your data from places like Equifax or some other, some other way to get your credit card, they're going to get the money directly from you by having you pay them to get your data back. Um, this has hit a string of hospitals. Hospitals paid tens of thousands of dollars to get their data unencrypted and get it back. Individuals get hit with this all the time, and they pay to get the data back as well a lot of times. My father-in-law over the summer got hit with ransomware. He's notorious for <laughs> clicking on links he shouldn't that look kind of legitimate in emails, and he did that, and one of these screens popped up. Next thing you know, it's in the evening. I get a phone call. Angela, what do I do? How do I get my data back? And I said, well, honestly, you have to pay if you really want it back unless you have it backed up. And he didn't have it backed up, and he's pretty stubborn, and he just decided he wasn't going to pay. So unfortunately, though, he lost all of his photos. He takes a lot of photos. He lost all of those from many years and a lot of personal documents because he didn't have his data backed up, and he didn't want to pay. Now, I guess the little bit of good news out of this is that if you do pay, the attackers usually make good on their deal. Um, they even have technical support set up to tell you, <laughs> you know, to tell you how to pay and step by step exactly what to do. And, you know, the hospitals and individuals, they've gotten the, the encryption key to be able to unencrypt it and get their data back. Um, but this is just one of the examples of what can happen, you know, clicking on some of those phishing links that Jason was just talking about. So we have scared you, I think, maybe a little bit. Um, hopefully not too much, and we don't want you to leave here scared. Um, we also want to share information. You know, we want to give you the tools and the, the tips for you to be able to walk out of here and protect your information moving forward. So for the last uh, five years, I've been working with the National Science Foundation on figuring out ways of we can inoculate our businesses and ourselves through particularly social engineered attacks like phishing. So I'm going to share with you some of the research and some of the things we've been doing there. But surprisingly, one of the things that we found out of all this research we've been doing for many years is that people use technology mindlessly, right? And in fact, email puts us in this mindless, in this mindless state where we go through and we're just answering email. Now, what I like to use as an example of mindless behavior, and I'll use this as, as last Saturday, uh, I was doing a talk similar to this. I got in my car, I started driving, and I ended up at my kid's school for some reason, right? That's mindless behavior. In psychology, we know that we, we, there's two routes we take to make decisions. There's a central route where we think about things a little bit more. It's a little more laborious, and we really you know, hash over whether or not we should make a decision or not. And then we have this other route, which you call pr the peripheral route, which is automatic decision making. And us as humans, we do both, and we have to do both. You can't be in that central route all the time, or you get absolutely nothing done. So our goal in this research is maybe, maybe there's ways to nudge you up to that central route when you get certain messages, and then nudge you back when you have to do the rest of your job. 
because we are trained to be in the automatic route a lot of the times, and this automatic behavior is what is why we do so well at our jobs. It's because we don't have to think about things thoroughly, but we know that this is how social engineers prey on us, is this doing this. So we looked at a whole bunch of different things. One of the things we looked at in, in organizations is we'd put these leaderboards out. And what I mean by leaderboards is anytime somebody in the organization identified a message, they would get these fictitious points, and it created this sort of game out of it. We just wanted to see what happened. Another thing we did is we put out shame boards. So we actually listed when somebody clicked on an email message in a public forum. Uh, and then a third thing we did was put out notification boards where it just said this email has been identified as a possible phishing threat. And by the way, this is who identified that particular email. So then we did an experiment in a particular organization. We had a bit of a horse race to see what was the most effective at getting people to be resilient to phishing messages. So we'd run this experiment, in this case for six weeks, and then we'd go ahead and fish people. And we said, which one of these in this blind, in this double blind study, which one of these was the most effective way to get pe pe uh, prevent people from clicking on an email message? So what do you folks think it was? Do you think it was the leaderboard, the shame board as we call it, or the notification board? What do you think? So surprisingly, the shame board was the worst for two reasons. One, as soon as they clicked on an email, they decided to click on all the emails after that. When they were on the shame board, people just kept on shaming themselves. <laughs> so that is an ineffective way for security to happen, right? The leaderboard was effective, but we only found about 15% of the people in the organization really wanted to play the game. And so really, you know, they weren't really that effective. The notification board decreased phishing email links 80%. Because those who wanted their name on the board got their name on the board and wanted to play the game and find all these phishing messages that people were sending out. But also, the people who didn't want to play the game just used that as a check. So in other words, a rising tide kind of floats all boats. So we thought, OK, this is interesting when we have between people. What if we were trying to change a person? So we looked at all sorts of different types of training. The most traditional training that we get at this, you know, at this university and other places and most organizations is you get a video or a narr narrated PowerPoint or a podcast, and then you go through and you do a little quiz after. And we found, surprisingly, that works. That works uh, to create awareness. It's short term, meaning it only lasts about six weeks, but it still works. We also sent people through mindfulness training. So mindfulness training, if you're unfamiliar with that concept, it's just for you to be more aware of your environment in general. And we really focus on being mindful with technology. In other words, let's spot things that are strange. Let's be, uh, it's really that awareness piece that we did. So we train people for mindfulness. And then what we've said is half the group, you get this particular training, and the other half the group got no training. They just got a survey that asked them a bunch of different questions. And what we found that mindfulness decreased clicks about 40%, just giving the people the ability to reflect and the ability to nudge them up to that central route and then nudge them back down to that peripheral route as they're going through this process. So the key here is, the whole key, and I'll give you the 30-second the pitch on what mindfulness training is, is that trust your gut. If you pause and reflect, even for less than a second, you're going to make a better decision than not reflecting at all, every time. And what we also found is that not only are you more secure when you do mindfulness training and you pause and reflect when you should, brief moment. This isn't pausing and reflecting for an afternoon. This is pausing and reflecting for less than a second saying, that's strange. And we know you're going to make a good decision on that. We also found you become a better colleague and a better at your job by doing this same technique. So you may have heard this in a popular press. Time Magazine had a, had a cover on mindfulness. I was a complete skeptic on this process, but it works. If you pause and reflect at the right moments, you do make better decisions and better security decisions. Now, what's interesting about this, so that is kind of the psychology behind it. So the whole psychology is building awareness. Right? And, one, and we want to show you some tools where you can build awareness. So here's a tool right here called uh, Heroic. And Heroic is one of several tools 
where you can check to see if your email has been hacked. So there's several folks that'll do that out there. Before I remembered, uh, I, I mentioned Discover Card. There's going to be more marketing around this than you ever can imagine. And in fact, I've heard Equifax marketing identity theft services recently, which is completely ironic, right? Um, but this is a site where you can go and check your email. So I put in my Gmail account. This is my actual accounts. This is Last.fm, Dropbox, Tumblr, and Adobe. All of them have been compromised, meaning they know my username and they know my password, and they may or may not know my credit card based that I've used on those particular sites. Why that is important is because we know that more than 70% of people reuse the same passwords for different websites. Do not use the same passwords for different websites. And you're like, how can I keep this all straight? And Jason is going to talk a little bit about how, how to do that. Um, they're very successful at going to Last.fm and then moving on and into, into another site and using that same username and password to gain access and credentials. So passwords is an important piece of this. So I'm going to turn it over to Jason, who's going to talk about passwords and some techniques on how to do a better job. So passwords were created in the 1960s. Does anybody have any technology running that was made in the 1960s? A car, right? <laughs> that's it. <laughs> if you have other technology, I want to know about it, because that's, there's very few things that were created in the 1960s that we still rely on heavily today. Uh, so passwords, the, the, it's, it's a dying medium. We've started moving into other things, biometrics, and when you log into your bank, a lot of you probably get phone calls or text messages. It's those other things that are helping protect those accounts. But I want to talk about, because passwords are still a big part of this, I want to talk about, let's secure that password a little bit more. We want to move from using passwords to passphrases. Um, and I'll get to this in a minute, but does anybody think CAV2468 exclamation mark is a secure password? <laughs> um, from the laughter, I'm going to take that as a no. Um, what about, let me give you another one here, uh, CA dollar sign D0V apostrophe N period. Raise your hands, everybody thinks that's, that's good? Okay, that's great. How about Mr. Period Thomas Jefferson? Okay. Wahoo, wah, wahoo, wah, exclamation mark. Are any of those good passwords? We'll get to that in a second. Okay, so I'm going to repeat what Ryan said. Use different passwords on every site. If one site gets hacked, they already have your email, which is most of the time it's your username, and they're going to use that same password on a different site, and they can get into your email, they can get into your bank. Use different passwords. The, you can use a password manager. We're going to talk about password managers in a minute, but password managers, you can have different passwords for every site. You only have to remember one password, and that's to unlock that password manager. My mom keeps a little black book, and she has them all written down. Not my favorite. That means anybody who's in her house or gets into her house can get that but that protects her from a lot of things and she can keep different passwords. So I'm gonna go back to those passwords we talked about a second ago. I have all four of them up top. And it's gonna be surprising because those two that we kind of laughed at the, the end are actually more secure than the first two. If a bad guy's doing what we call a dictionary attack, he's got a, a set words and he's doing it, no, it's not gonna protect against this. But if they're trying to brute force it, they're trying every combination of every password that Mr. Thomas Jefferson and the Wahoo Wah, Wahoo Wah are actually strong passwords because of the length. The longer you can make your password, the better. And it doesn't have to be something that's like the second one. A lot of folks are, will raise their hand and say, that's secure. And it, it is secure from another human. But humans aren't really who are breaking these passwords. They're computers. And to a computer, that's not very hard. It's eight characters. It can be broken in about two hours. Now, when we move down to those other ones, 1.25 thousand trillion centuries and 5.5 trillion trillion centuries, I'm not going to be around to see them break my password. Can I, can I add one quick thing here? Um, the reasons why these special characters don't work and that people are getting away from these conventions is because we all, the psychology tells us, we all use the same conventions. So they're not really that special. So what we do is we either replace an A with an at sign, we add an exclamation point at the end of the password, or we change out, uh, the, what's, the third one is we change out L's for um, the, the straight up and down, right? So we all do the same. 80% of the conventions that we do, the hackers know that. So changing out your at sign to something else isn't that clever, uh, really, because everybody else is changing it out. 
adding an exclamation mark or the letter or the number one to the end of the password isn't that clever. They figured this out. And Google did a big study. Google has all our passwords. And they did a big study. It says, what are the different conventions people are using? And what they found was, you know, these conventions are silly because we all use the same ones and they're pretty much easy to guess. Um, so that's another reason on why these short passwords that look super secure are actually not that secure. There was also a study out of Carnegie Mellon that, that actually they took all of these different passwords and they looked. They said, exclamation, if you, if you had to use a special character, 75% of all the passwords that were having to use that special character were exclamation mark. And I hear laughter because that means that's probably in your password. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about password managers. I have just a couple up here. This is not an endorsement. I just went, we went and at least found a few. The top row are the free ones. The bottom row are the ones you have to pay for. So I'm going to concentrate on the free ones. Um, LastPass and KeepPass, both of them are, will integrate on your computer. They're multi-platform, so if you have a Mac, if you have Windows, it doesn't matter. Um, they have an encrypted store, so it's locked up with your password. And then you can store the different ones. Um, I can talk a little bit more about LastPass because I'm a LastPass user. LastPass, that feature that uh, Ryan talked about a little while ago where you can go put your email address in the site and it will show you, LastPass also has that built in. So here are all your passwords in LastPass. They can do two things. One, they'll check your usernames to see if that username appeared in any of the databases they know of that have been hacked. They'll also check the passwords. They'll go grab all the hashes and hash your password and say, is it the same? And they can tell you if any of your passwords are out there. So let's say you come up with this really clever password and somebody else did. They have the same password and their account was hacked on Adobe. And you don't have an Adobe account. But the fact that it will come out to be the same, they can tell you that password's out in the wild. So if someone ever saw what your password, a hash is uh, a cryptographic representation of your password. If they see that in the wild, they already know what the password is. So LastPass has the ability to generate passwords per site. You don't have to know what they are. So for my banks, I have it go and generate passwords for me. There are these long strings. I have no idea. And when I want to use it, I click on the little button, I put my master password in, and it fills out the form for me. It's that easy. So I have, I looked last night, I have 549 different sites in LastPass. So it's 549 different passwords. There's no way I could remember 549 passwords without doing some kind of common convention, like putting a number on the end. And Bad guys know this. And when they get a password, that's the first thing they try. If they were able to get a password and it doesn't work, there was a two on the end, the next thing they're going to try is the three and the four and the, and the five because people are just rotating passwords when they have to change them. And another example of uh, something that a lot of people do that the attackers already know, you know, my password could be, I love my dog, exclamation point. So a lot of people will do, I love my dog, exclamation point, Amazon. I love my dog, exclamation point, Gmail or LinkedIn. And they tack on to the end whatever the service is that that password is for. Attackers know that as well. So if they hacked LinkedIn, they got your password, they know it's I love my dog LinkedIn, the first thing they're going to do is try something similar at all the other places you may have accounts. Do you want to say something on that? Yeah. Um, one thing, question I get all the time with the password managers, and I, I also use password managers and, uh, and slowly converting my wife to use password manager. Um, because their computer is now not secure. Um, <laughs> uh, is they go, is, isn't it easy? Don't they just have to get one password then? And then they have access to all my passwords. So, and the argument is, is that is, there's a couple things that's, that's flawed with that particular argument. The, fir the first one is, is that there's one password that is going to be different than all your other passwords. So if you use the same password for LastPass, yes, it's insecure as everything else. But all LastPass does in these other companies is think about security. They have experts and PhDs and folks, and all they're concerned with is thinking about being secure with the password. That's their whole job. So I say, if you think that you're smarter than these folks and your system is smarter and it, then albeit try whatever system works. But really, any system is better than doing what we're all doing, which is reusing the same variants of different passwords. So raising the bar even slightly, and in the case of a password manager, greatly um, really defers most attackers, if not all attackers, because they're looking for the easy um, the easy scores. They're looking for the unpatched web servers that had a patch out for months and months and months. 
Um, they're not looking for the complicated attacks. They're they're business people trying to get the quick uh, the quick score. So these are they perfect? I would say no, but are they better than what you're doing is what you should ask yourself. And if they're better than what you're doing, then go ahead and do it. And they are huge targets, as, as, as Ryan said. LastPass has actually been broken into three times. Okay, three times. And here I am, the Chief Information Security Officer, telling you I use LastPass. The first time they got broken into, they had master passwords for every vault, and every password was disclosed. The second time, they said, ooh, this is a really bad business model. They changed it. They, they warned everybody, had, helped everybody change passwords. Second time, they got usernames, I'm sorry, names and email addresses. That's all they got. The third time, they got names. That's it. So their business model has definitely increased. They've learned from their mistakes, and, and I feel comfortable putting all my passwords in there. But we've got to move past passwords. So talk about multi-factor authentication. Here at the university, we call it two-step because it's the easiest thing to remember. It's two steps to authenticate. First, we put our username and password in. Second, we use something else. You may be doing this with the banks right now. I mentioned that a minute ago, where you log in and it says, you know, we don't recognize this computer. Or we don't recognize where you're coming from. Can we call you? Can we send you an email? Can we send you a text to your phone? They want to do something. And that's the idea of it's something you know. That was that username and password. You knew, you knew something. And then they want to make sure you have something. You have access to your email. You have access to your phone. Something they know about already that they can verify you. Any site that you're doing business with that allows you to enable this, I would absolutely enable this. The passwords, you can know your password, and the bad guy can know your password. And you don't know the, the bad guy knows your password, and he, he's in. However, if you have this other piece, he can know your password all day long, but the service is protected. So I have a few icons on the left, whether it's Snapchat, Gmail, Facebook. They all allow you to do this. Most of them will remember your computer once you've logged in for at least 30, 60 days. So you don't have to do it every time you log in because it realizes that's that computer. It's the same computer. But if you do this, if you're able to actually enable these things where you can use your cell phone or a house phone, your other email address, it helps protect those accounts. think this? Yeah, I'm not on. Okay, am I on? How many people think this? Yeah. So I mentioned backup earlier when I talked about my father-in-law um, falling for the ransomware attack and you know, backup is so simple, and it's been around also since the 1960s, you know? <laughs> and so it's been around for a long time, but so many people don't do backup. And in fact, I didn't backup many, many years ago. I didn't backup, um, and I was already early in my IT career, and my dog walked through the living room, tripped over my laptop's uh, cord that plugged into the outlet, pulled my laptop off of the coffee table, and it hit the floor and shattered, and the hard drive mangled and crashed inside. So everything was gone, and I learned my lesson at that time. It wasn't even a cyber attack. It was a dog attack on my, on my laptop. <laughs> so I learned my lesson at that time, back up, back up, back up, and it's just so important. So something like ransomware, if you're backed up, so what? You don't have to pay them. You just restore all your photos, all your documents, your tax returns that you keep stored on a folder somewhere, all those kinds of good things. So nowadays, I use a service called Carbonite. I, I really enjoy that one. You do have to pay for it, but it's not too expensive per year, uh, $80, $90 maybe, I think, per year, maybe 60 somewhere in that range, less than $100 a year. I think that's worth it for me. It automatically runs on my laptop, and it backs up everything every day, things that change. It notices what I'm doing, and if I create a new document, it'll go ahead and store that up on the Carbonite servers for me. Um, aside from that, because I run a Mac. I also use Time Machine. So I have an external hard drive that I plug in and I copy everything over to that. And then even on top of that, when I have something important that I'm doing, like maybe I'm giving a talk and I've got slides like this, I'll, I'll email them to myself. So I, I have a, a few different ways that I'm backing up even more important things, some other external hard drives that I might archive things on. Um, so backup is really important to protect against ransomware, uh, viruses and worms, and a lot of attacks like that. Um, and so I can mentioned. I, can I say something yes. about backups? One misconception about the backup is Dropbox, Box Services, all these others. Those aren't backup services. Those are file synchronization services. So what that means is if you get ransomware on your machine and you're using Dropbox, and Dropbox now has a version number which will actually 
is more of a backup-like product, but just plain old Dropbox or Google Drive that you're synchronizing or Box services, one of these, it'll synchronize that file so now it's, it's locked as well. So that is not really, in my mind, a backup. Because if they steal those services, if something happens, if a file gets changed, it get, that synchronization gets changed. Now, some of those services offer backup like it, uh, Dropbox being one of them, where they call, they call it version control, so it'll back up like different versions of, of that file. That, those are fine, but Dropbox itself isn't really a backup, isn't considered a backup. I like thinking this in terms of you need three copies of all your files. One copy on your machine, one copy, as Angela said, on Carbonite or a product that is for backups, and another copy probably on an external drive like a USB drive. Then you know for sure. And if you're super paranoid, like me and my wife's computer, I actually swap out my backup drives between work and home. So every week I'll take one to work and bring one home and one to work and vice versa, and that's in case of... So I'll swap those USB files back and forth between work and home in case you know, my house burns down or something completely awful happens. So, but I'm, that's probably a little extreme, but those, that's, think about it. Do I have my files in three places is what you should really think about. That's a really good um, uh, tip there, Ryan. Thank you for that. So let's circle back around to Equifax, what we started talking about today. Um, First thing, I hope everyone in this room has already gone to that first website there, EquifaxSecurity2017.com, and checked to see, yes, that is the right one, uh, to check and see if your information was compromised. I'm actually so surprised it's how many people haven't even checked yet. You know, I was working on this presentation this week at work, and I was telling one of my colleagues about this presentation that the three of us were giving, and I mentioned Equifax, and they had not checked. So I sat at her computer right then and I said, let's log in and check. So she logged in and she checked her information, she checked her husband's information. Um, so it's really important to check to see if you have been compromised in that particular attack. And then if you have, there's some steps that you can take. Now a lot of these steps, take them anyway. Even if your information hasn't been compromised, these are really good things to consider and to start doing as a regular practice. Now. If you have been compromised, you can enroll in Equifax's um, free credit monitoring service that they're providing as part of their uh, making up for the breach. And they've extended that service now to January 31st, 2018. It was expiring, I think, at the end of this month, but now they've extended it. So you've got longer to go ahead and enroll in that um, credit monitoring. Now, another thing um, that you can do is sign up for your free credit monitoring to check your, your credit reports. And you need to do this from all three of the agencies uh, that run, four of the agencies, I think someone said over there, that check your, um, that run your credit reports. So you'll want to do that periodically. And what you're going to look for is you're going to look for accounts and activity that you don't recognize. You know, maybe there's something on there that looks like a automobile loan and you didn't get an automobile loan recently. Maybe your, your auto's paid off. You know, something that doesn't quite look right. Some credit cards maybe that you don't have. So you'll want to do that. Another thing that you can do is you can actually place a fraud alert on your credit card information. And in this case, when creditors or folks that are going to be opening accounts or are going to be opening something in your name, they actually have to contact you first. And the good thing about the fraud alert is you only have to call one of those agencies, and then all the other agencies will know to do that as well. So that's kind of a, a nice thing that they actually have to contact you. Um, you do have to renew that, though, every 90 days. It's not something that you put on there and it stays. This fraud alert, you have to every 90 days you know, re-up that. Now, you could take a, a step further and actually put a freeze on your credit, which a lot of people are doing. And in this case, potential creditors, say it's an auto, um, automobile store, a furniture store, a credit card, they can't pull your credit and do anything. It's frozen. You actually have to unfreeze it for them to be able to do something. So that makes it you know, even better for you that the attackers won't steal your identity and start opening up credit in your name. That'll really protect you. Now, the thing with this is you have to call each one of those uh, credit report agencies to do that. 
And there is a fee, but it's not a big fee. You know, for Virginia, it's $10 to, to create the freeze. And then if you need to unfreeze it, they don't charge you anything. And other states are around the same. It might be $5 to freeze and unfreeze. You know, they may charge you to unfreeze. So it's not a lot, really, when you're thinking about what you're protecting with this particular credit freeze in place. Um, and then... The next thing is after credit freeze is just monitoring your credit cards and accounts for malicious activity. I hope that you're all just doing that anyway because if you see $500 somewhere showing up that you did not spend, uh, you'll want to know exactly you know, what's going on there. Did someone create a fake credit card with my information on it? I actually have um, fraud on my credit cards, so they'll text and email me if something like that happens. And about a year ago... I did all of a sudden get a text saying that there was activity on my credit card. And it was very interesting because I, I'm not sure what the algorithm was that triggered this, but someone had just spent over $200 at a food lion up in Fredericksburg. Um, so I'm not sure what triggered that, that they didn't just think that was me. It could be I don't shop at Food Lion, I don't live in Fredericksburg, and I never spend $200 at a pop. You know, it could be a combination of things. But it was really great that they texted me and they called me right away, and I said, I'm sitting here in Charlottesville. I am not in Fredericksburg buying over $200 worth of groceries. So they were immediately able to stop all transactions on my credit card at that point. Unfortunately for me, this seems to happen right around this time every year. I think my credit card seems to be gotten uh, around the around the holiday season, and that's always fun to deal with. And then the last thing, but one of the most important things here, is filing your taxes early. If your information, the, the keys to the kingdom, was compromised through Equifax or something else um, of that type of attack, and they can file taxes in your name. So now they're going to file taxes, and they're going to get tax returns um, to them, you're not going to get anything, and when you try to file your taxes and then a whole lot of other things that ensue after that, your life is going to become very, very complicated <laughs> moving forward, and that kind of thing can take years to resolve. So definitely try to file your taxes as soon as you have all of the information that you need to start filing. So one quick story about the filing taxes, too. So I was personally involved in something like this where we had three, when I lived in Massachusetts, there was three people on my street that their taxes were filed kindly for them, uh, and the returns were kindly collected for them as well. So this isn't just a cybersecurity problem, and I think a lot of things, when, when people grab credit cards, sometimes they grab your, your physical credit card number with these skimmers that are put on you know, at gas stations at, and at ATMs that, you know, it's surprising where we put our things we put our credit card in, right, when we really think about that. Um, so this is behavior that is not only online, but I think it's, it's now bled over to this is we should act this way pretty much with, with everything. So those three people um, that taxes were filed for them, the person knew when the W-2s were going out from our university, and there was three people living on the street. We all worked at the same university. For some reason, mine was held up in the mail, and it seems like that's a story of my life, but um, held up in the mail, and it, it didn't receive that, they didn't receive it that day. But they went and grabbed the W-2s out of the mailboxes. My university now doesn't send W-2s anymore, um, my former university, because of that. So it's things like that that now we're all bleeding into this criminal activity, and it's cyber, yes, and a heavy portion of it's cyber, but a lot of it is local criminal activity as well, and they know to go to the deep web and learn these techniques. They can buy these skimmers and place them at different places. They can buy machines that make credit cards for them, um, all sorts of different things. So they go to the deep web to buy these devices, and they're actually local criminals. Okay, so thank you for adding that, Ryan. Um, and now we're at the question portion of our talk today. And I think some, some folks are going to come around with microphones, so keep your hands up. I think we need to keep one microphone up here for us. There you go. So uh, when, you, when you get notifications on Google from your iCloud, right, and they say you're back, it, things are backed up, is this... The, the kind of backing up to which you're referring, or is this when you're talking about Carbonite, is that something that you do in addition to having the iCloud? So, so the brand new service, it's a new service that Google's doing, does do offline backups. They also have a file synchronization service, so you have to go in your settings and know which one you're getting. 
So how you know that with Google is if you have Google Drive and you drop some things on your desktop and they also show up on Google Drive, that's a synchronization service. That is not backing up. The product that I think you're talking about is a full backup, so it doesn't reside on your machine. So if something bad happens to your machine, it, that's, I would consider that, and that's a Google backup service, that is a second copy. And that is secure, but you st I would say you still need one more copy somewhere. Besides Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion, Innovus is the fourth credit agency. Um, but I have a couple of questions. Since phones are easily hacked these days when you download apps like uh, Facebook um, Messenger, what's another secondary security measure rather than your, your iPhone? And secondly, isn't it better to keep your password off the cloud like iPassword allows you to keep your, your passwords off the cloud rather than on the cloud? So uh, I'll take this one. Um, two questions there. So I would say the, there are definitely different hacks for an iPhone for Android, for any of those, um, I would put a lot of, of trust in those devices depending on what you're doing. Um, there's a, this concept of jailbreaking. Jailbreaking is where you bypass the vendor protections on a phone to add extra features. Once you do that, you're actually are putting your phone at risk because it does, you're also bypassing a lot of those security controls. Um, if you're getting your apps, things like Facebook, if you're getting those from from reputable sources. If you have an Apple phone, you're getting it from the Apple Store. You're getting it from the, for an Android, from the Google Play Store. There is some that they do to, to scan for malicious code. So I actually have a lot more trust in my cell phone because it is encrypted, it is opened up by a password locally, or my thumbprint, or with the new iPhone, with, and, and some of the Androids do it with facial recognition. So I actually, I think that's, it, it's good. There's, there are known hacks on a phone. It's right now, the probability of that happening is very, very low. Um, on an iPhone, so this is the way iPhone differs a little bit from the Android. iPhone uses a sandboxing technology. One app can't, can't invade another app. So even if Facebook is, is infected on the iPhone, it's not going to go over to your, it's not going to be able to get to your password store. So the second piece of that was keeping passwords local versus putting them in the cloud. Um, so I've sat down recently with LastPass engineers to talk about this, this very thing. The way LastPass works, and they, you can go to their site and you actually can see this diagram, there's three pieces of the key up in the cloud. One of them rests locally, and two of them are in the cloud. So even if they're in the, if they're in the cloud, they can't get that third piece just by breaking in. If they get your password, they have it all. And that's why I would say go back to that two-factor authentication or that two-step authentication. So it's something you have that gets you in there. Um, but Purely breaking into LastPass is not going to expose your passwords. Is it a risk to put in the cloud? Anything you, you're, you don't have control of is a risk. And it's just going to be one of those risks that you have to evaluate and say, is it too high of a risk here? Uh, for me, for putting it in LastPass, putting it in the cloud, it was not. Uh, for some, people don't want to put anything in the cloud, and I understand that. You don't want to add anything? Real quickly, I, I have a simple way of thinking about security. Is the only secure computer, and a one-star general once told told this to me, the only secure computer is a computer that's off with a 19-year-old Marine standing beside it, right? <laughs> but the problem is, is that 90% of us do unsecure behavior. So if we're if we're debating between a locally store, password store and a cloud store, we're having the right conversation. Either is better than what we are doing. So I think for us, cyber hygiene is so bad. We're using the same passwords. We're, we're saving them to our email. If you're doing that, do change that today after we beat Virginia, or Virginia, Virginia Tech, Georgia Tech. Um, but I think this, it, it's, it's these, can you break into something? Yes, theoretically, two-factor authentication is broken into. But it is so good, and the probabilities are so low, we just need to raise the bar. So my philosophy is, if you don't have a password manager, use one. And then figure out from there which one to use that will make you more secure. But take that first step first, and then go from there. Yeah, and I agree with uh, the same things that Jason said. I don't feel that my... Uh, the vulnerabilities that are on an iPhone aren't the low-hanging fruit. 
So I feel pretty comfortable in the security of my um, iPhone, the sandboxing that he's talking about where the applications are protected from each other. Um, I am very picky, though, about certain things with my phone, and these are just personal preferences because, like Jason said, it comes down to your risk tolerance and what risk you're willing to tolerate in terms of on your laptop or on your phone. So some of the things I do and don't do, I don't do any banking from my phone. I won't log into any of my banking or credit card accounts from my phone. I won't connect to public Wi-Fi from my phone. I'll only connect to my home Wi-Fi or I'll use the cellular network uh, for data. Um, those are two big things. I'm also picky about what apps I put on my phone. So I'll put legitimate, trustworthy apps on my phone. I do have Facebook, but not Facebook Messenger. Um, not that Facebook Messenger isn't trustworthy. It's just something I didn't want on my phone. You know, I try to minimize and keep my phone pretty clean. Um, I do check my emails on my phone, but I don't click on links uh, on my phone. I'll go to my laptop and do those things. So it just kind of comes down to how you use it and the types of applications that you put on it as well. How vulnerable will uh, autonomous vehicles be to cyber attacks? So uh, the question was, how vulnerable will autonomous cars be? Well, they are a computer at the end of the day, right? So we've probably seen the 60 Minutes ad. We have engineers here at UVA that are exposing autonomous vehicles to cyber attacks as well. So that is an absolute problem. Uh, but it's not only vehicles. If you think of the way that, um, that we're going to have autonomous airplanes soon, the way that we're going to have autonomous public transportation already. Um, so we have all these things. And there was, uh, in Germany, a recent case of a 16-year-old boy um, uh, playing with the public transportation system and causing havoc because it was an autonomous system. So I think it's bigger than just autonomous cars. I think those are kind of the sexy topic, for lack of a better word, right now. But everything is becoming automated. Um, so we need to become aware of that. Yeah, it's not just the autonomous vehicles, it's the regular vehicles that um, we have now. The Jeep Cherokee was hacked a few years ago remotely. Um, so those things can happen already. Um, your smart keys to open your door and, and start your car, there's relay attacks that can um, do that for you when you don't know about it because you're sleeping. Um, so there's already a lot of attacks. And like Ryan said, here at the University of Virginia, there's an entire program called Cyber Physical Systems where there's students doing research in cyber physical systems, professors who are hired in just for their skill sets in cyber physical systems. Automobiles fall under that umbrella of cyber physical systems. So there's a lot of research going into that for current vehicle technology, future autonomous vehicle technology. But there's definitely a lot of work that needs to be done in that area. And as Althea said, that could be a whole other topic. <laughs> Hello. An Air Force retired officer told me that there was a little button that you could put on a credit card where it's one transaction and, and the transaction goes away after you charge that and it's not on the system anymore. Is, is this correct, and how do you uh, uh, reach that? So, um, so there's several credit cards right now that you can actually request what they call temporary numbers, even if you use them online. So I know one of them, Citibank is one of them, where you could say, hey, I want a temporary transaction. I'm going to a shady website and I'm buying something and that should be enough not to do it alone but say if you wanted to um, you could get a temporary number there are devices that are coming out some startups that are coming out with temporary credit card numbers when you hit the button it'll give you a credit card number they're not in um, they're not widely used uh, one was one company called coin um, went went out of business just recently and the reason for that was it's just nobody thought that was an important issue um, they just didn't sell very many of them. There are two other startups right now that are doing exactly that. Um, we don't even have the chips right now required in our credit cards. Again, it's just basic. The rest of the world, if you've been anywhere outside the United States, their credit card systems are so much secure than ours. It's, it's a travesty. And that is a choice by the credit card companies not to do that. And believe me, 
It's their risk model. They put, they said, this is how much it'll cost. This is how much we'll pay. How much we'll pay is less than how much it will cost, so we're not going to go ahead and do that. So that is where I, you know, I'm Canadian, so I love legislation. Um, that's where legislation could come in and maybe fix that problem where most other companies are much more secure. So that raises, you know, a really good issue that there's such better technologies out there that are not incorporated into common practices. With the topic of hygiene, can you talk about virus scanning software and specifically Kaspersky? So like we've said, with any of these technologies, do something. Um, so if you don't have antivirus on your machines, put it on there. There's tons of free stuff out there. It doesn't matter if you have a Mac or a Windows box. Um, you may, for, for a lot of times, I'll get the question of, are Macs more secure? And the answer is no. They're, they just don't have the market share Windows box does, so more viruses are written for a Windows box. But you need antivirus on your Mac. It may not be today. There's not any known active viruses out for a Mac, specifically. But I would put it on there. Uh, to address the, the bigger issue there, what you're asking about is Kaspersky. Um, it's in the news. Um, you the one you want to handle this? <laughs> um, uh, so right now, it's an allegation that Kaspersky is working with the Russian government. They are a Russian company. Um, I don't know. It's just, you know, it's, if, if I was an enterprise if I was running an enterprise system, I'd be wary of any international appliances or software running on my the way the, this world is today. Uh, if I was a personal thing, if the choice was no antivirus or, or Kapersky, I would do Kapersky, to be quite honest with you, but that isn't our choice. Um, so you can kind of read between the lines what I'm saying there. Antivirus is good, very good. I think we've got time for one more. Yeah, the, uh, the other side of the coin, um, are all of the abuses of our, our private information by the companies, uh, the telephone company? All these companies sell our information, our private information. And if you go to a medical doctor or you go to a hospital, they all love to use, put all of your medical information on a third-party website because it's free to them. And you've got to believe that those, that company is selling all the information to whoever is going to pay for it. So you got telephone companies, you got government agencies. I, I understand the DMV even sells information. So when you go on the website, you go on the internet and you pay $10, you can get people's financial information, all their personal information. Those are probably not from hacker or, or deep, deep, dark uh, web, but probably telephone companies, government agencies, everybody that's making money on our information. So it's kind of a farce in a way. We're trying to protect ourselves from the, the criminals, and they're really the, the, the legitimate companies that are, are really criminalizing our private information. So, you know, I don't know how you deal with that, but there's too much money involved to probably do anything about it. But it's kind of, we're kind of, it's a joke that we're really thinking that we're protected because we're being abused by, by all the companies. I don't know if you have any comments related to that. The, the one easy way of thinking about your information is, one, it's not really yours. It's shared information between you and who you share it with. So this whole idea of privacy, and this has been said before, is really non-existent. It's just who you share that information from. And you're absolutely right. So I showed an example of you can buy a full, um, a fulls, meaning all the credit information from one person. Well, you can go to one of several companies and do the exact same thing. What is different is there is a legal framework on how you use that, and we are becoming better at that. One of the things that is exciting for me is a recent law that was passed in lower uh, um, in Manhattan through through there, and they're pretty progressive. So we never used to have laws about what happens when breaches happen. Now we now have laws saying you need to tell your customers, and New York is a leader in this, within 30 days of a breach happening. And this is how you tell your customers, and this is how you're going to protect your customers. And right now, they're the average fine is about $2 per record. Hilton was fined $700,000. The European Union is now changing that to $1,200 per record, which changes the financial models. So I think our legislation may catch up is a good news, but you're absolutely right. We actually don't know where all our information is, and that's one of the biggest problems. Okay, last question. Thank you. Good morning. This is a really... 
this isn't really a question but a comment, but I think it's relative to a lot of us, in that I think another good reason for a password manager is that while I want to secure my sites and credentials for those sites from the bad guys, I don't want to secure that information from my wife. If I should, unfortunately, keel over to this afternoon or tomorrow, um, I would hope she'd be sad for a couple of days. We'll <laughs> talk about that. But, I, but after that, she's going to need to go online next week and maybe pay some bills or move some money around or something. And, and after that, with the password manager, that's a place that she can know and she can, can identify, we've, here's the information of how I get to such and such, and here's the login for it. So it was, it was that aspect as well. It sounds really great. Uh, thank you for the comment. Uh, a lot of these, like LastPass, will let you either share folders with somebody else, or they also have features built in that you can say, these are trusted people, and they could get in in an untimely demise. Any of those emergency situations, they can get into those passwords. But you set up your trusted people. Absolutely. It's a great comment. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you.